0: the things that I've kind of discovered about myself over the last couple of years, and I've I've probably known this for a long time, but I've just kind of learned in a fresh way is that one of the things that I hate most in life is waiting, Like, like I don't like to wait on anything. I was reminded of this on Friday night. Our, our family had gone out to eat somewhere, and I walk into this restaurant, and you know, you do that thing you do where you go up to the hostess stand and it's like, hey, how long is the wait gonna be? And, and she's like, it's gonna be 10 minutes. And I was like, Oh, you know, in, in my heart, I <laughs> like 10 whole minutes, you know, we don't have time for that. And, and Sydney was just reminding me, she's like, Man, you hate waiting. Like, and it's true. I don't like to wait for anything. I don't want to wait for a table at, at our favorite restaurant. I don't want to wait for my favorite band to release their next record. I don't want to wait for Christmas or for the weekend. I don't like going the doctor because they have a whole room built to make you wait, like, I I don't like to wait for anything, but one of the things that I'm continually reminded of is despite my aversion to waiting, as long as I'm gonna do this thing called life, as long as I'm gonna be a human being, there there is no way to get around the fact that part of the human experience is waiting. That it's part of what it means to be, be human, that we're these people in process and there are these things that we just have to wait on. And I was reminded of this on Thursday night, one of my good friends was over at my house, he and his wife, they have uh, two incredible kids, they're getting ready to have their third kid and they're just some of the most amazing parents. And we were sitting down just kind of talking about their journey, and uh, I was just talking about what incredible parents they are, and and I'll never forget something he said to me just in passing, just a few nights ago. He said, Dave, part of the reason we enjoy this moment of parenting so much is because before that that moment of joy came, that moment of becoming parents, he says there was eight years that preceded it of unwanted waiting. There there were eight years that came before where every doctor said, hey, you'll, you'll never have a kid. There's there, there's nothing you can do about it like like this just isn't going to be a part of your story. And he said, you know, for eight years we're just like praying. We're like God, like would you would you do something? Would you change your God of miracles? You can you can rewrite the story. And he said, Dave, I've been reminded over and over and over that so often before the moment of breakthrough, so often before the moment of joy, there's a season of unwanted waiting. Have you ever have you ever noticed that before? Uh, so often before we get to that thing that we, we want to, there's this, this season, and sometimes the season lasts a really long time where, where we go through this season of, of waiting, and the reality is in the hands of God, waiting does not have to be a wasted reality. And in fact, in the hands of God, waiting can be the thing that God uses to shape us. I so think about a, a friend of mine who got married last year, 52 years old, he'd never been married before, just an amazing man of God, loves the lord like walks with the lord dedicated his life to the lord and and for years he's just been praying hey god would, would you give me a spouse and, and he didn't believe that God had promised him a spouse. He didn't think that was his right. But he just he's like, Lord, it's the longing of my heart. And he's like, I, I dedicated my heart. I dedicated my eyes and just kind of the purity of who I was. And, and he said, then by the grace of God, for whatever reason, when I was 51 years old, this spouse came, this woman came into my life and I got married. And he, he's just the coolest, most awesome 52-year-old, like newlywed you've ever seen, just like, just beaming with joy. And he said, man, for whatever reason, before that moment of joy, there was this season of unwanted waiting. He said, I would have never chosen it. I still don't understand it. He says, but in in the the heart of God, in the eyes of God, I, I know it's not wasted. Or think about my friend who, in high school, he was the valedictorian. And then in college, he was, he was the top of his class. And then in his post-grad work and in his doctoral work, he was the top of every class that he was in. And he gets out with his doctorate degree. And then he goes through this season, almost a year and a half, where he can't get a job to save his life. And he's like, Dave, I was the top of my class. I'm the smartest guy I know. And I'm like, dude, you're the smartest guy I know. And he said, and yet for some reason, nobody seems to want me. And there's this season that before there was joy, there was this season of unwanted waiting. And you see this over and over and over, not just in the human experience, but you see this in the kingdom of God that so much of our story in the kingdom of God is this story of hurry up and wait. Like God shows up and he makes this promise. And then all of a sudden, Abraham finds himself waiting for years for the promise to come to bear. God shows up and he, he speaks this thing over Israel and they find themselves waiting for years for this thing to come to bear. He, he shows up over and over and over. He says, hey, I've, I've got something better than you can imagine, bigger than you can believe. And yet all of, all of a sudden it goes from this moment of promise to this moment of waiting. And I go, have you ever found yourself in the waiting? And here, here's what I know, like, because I love this church. I love, I, I know so many of you, I just know our stories. We're all in these different places of waiting. Some of you are, are, are waiting on that cancer, diagnosis to be healed you're waiting for your parents marriage to be put back together you're waiting for Jesus to bring your brother back to faith you're waiting on the spouse you're waiting on the job you're you're waiting on the breakthrough whatever it is and can we just admit that if, if we're really really honest sometimes the season of waiting is miserable and yet in the hands of God In the hands of God, it's never wasted. And Here's the reality. Not only are some of us waiting on an individual level, I go, a lot of us are waiting on a communal level. You know, over the last three months, we've just been praying. We're like, God, would you do what only you could do? God, would you bring revival in this city? God, would you stir up the church? God, would you shake the city to its foundation? And the truth is, we've seen God do some amazing things, and yet there's this sense that God has still not finished the work that he started. We're in this season of waiting. So the question is, human beings, is not, will we wait? The question is, how will we wait? Like, like what does it look like to be faithful to God in the spaces of waiting? Like, what does it look like to be faithful to him when you're not where you used to be, you're not where you want to be, you're somewhere in between? And I love this picture that begins to unfold in the scriptures, because in the scriptures, waiting is never this passive thing. Like when God would make the promise to Abraham, Abraham wouldn't sit back on his heels and say, okay, God, I'll just, I'll just wait here passively for you to do your thing. Like waiting was always this act of reality. It's kind of like when you go to a restaurant and the waiter comes up and if it's a good waiter, they never wait on you passively. The waiter's never in the kitchen waiting for you to call their name. The, the waiter shows up at your table and they're like, hey, can, can, can I give you a refill of the drink? Hey, can I bring you some more chips and salsa? You know the answer is always yes. You don't need to ask. Like, just keep it coming. Like, I'll always refill the chips and salsa. You know, a good waiter is actively waiting. And in this picture of waiting on the Lord that you see in the scriptures, is not this passive sit back, God? Okay, you're just going to do your thing. It says, Lord, how do we keep attending to your needs? How do we keep walking in your ways? How do we keep serving you? And what I love is you get to Acts chapter two and there's this moment where the disciples, they've been in this season of waiting. You know, before before Jesus entered in the world, the the people of God had been waiting for 400 years for the Messiah to come. And then he shows up and it seems like the waiting is over and all of a sudden they're like, wow, he's, he's here and Jesus is performing miracles and they think he's getting ready to turn the kingdom of Rome on its head. And then what happens? He surprises them all. He's crucified on a cross. He's raised from the dead. And then all of a sudden he looks at the disciples and he says, I'm getting ready to do something amazing in your life. He says, but it's not gonna go the way that you think. He says, I'm returning to heaven. You can't go where I'm going right now. He says, and I want to do something through you, but before that can happen, I need you to wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit to come. And you can almost imagine the disciples are like, more waiting, like why? Like we've waited and we've waited and we've waited. And Jesus says, hey, but what I wanna do, it's not gonna be wasted in the waiting. He says, but I I want you to wait for the Spirit to come. Because when he comes, something's gonna change. And we get to Acts chapter two and it seems like the waiting is finally over. They're there The day of Pentecost, the spirit of God is poured out. People are getting saved like crazy. The revival that we read about a few moments ago is beginning to, to spur on. And, I, and before we move out of chapter two, before we just keep going through the rest of this month, I, I want us to stop and just take note of how they waited actively on the Lord. Because here's the deal, I don't have any interest in learning the book of Acts. I wanna live the book of Acts. And I believe that what, what Jesus is inviting us into is, is a posture that says, hey, when we find ourselves in, in the in-between, will we wait upon the move of God actively wait upon the move of God the way that the early church did. And so I, I love this picture that unfolds in Acts chapter two. And so if, if you're friends with me, if you've ever gone to lunch with me, you know the way that this works. A lot of times I'll be sitting down with a friend and we'll start talking about things and I'll grab a napkin and I'll grab a pen and I'll just start doodling and drawing things out. I'm like, hey, here, here's what I see happening. And this week as I was praying through Acts chapter two, the Lord just kept giving me, me this picture. I just kept doodling this picture down on a piece of paper. And I want to share it with you tonight. as maybe a framework to help us think about what it looks like to wait faithfully on the Lord when we find ourselves in those seasons of being in between, waiting on God to move. And so he just kind of gave me this picture out of Acts chapter two, and it was this picture of a circle broken up into four quadrants. And in each one of these quadrants, there was kind of this active commitment to waiting in a unique way. And I just wanna kind of look back over the big frame of Acts two that we've seen over the last few weeks as we think about what it means to wait actively on on the Lord. And in the first quadrant, it was this commitment to actively wait by putting ourselves in the right place. To put ourselves in the right place. Look back at Acts chapter two, verse one. I want you to see this. Never really thought about this uh, this before, but it says, when the day of Pentecost came, the people of God were all together in one place. And so I I love this this moment that unfolds. They're getting ready to experience this radical outpouring of the Holy Spirit in their life. And I want you to hear me very clearly. God can work anywhere he wants to work, whenever he wants to work, however he wants to work. But I think sometimes we view the moves of God in a way that are so mysterious it almost becomes unhelpful to us. And I want you to notice where the people were when they began to experience this radical outpouring of God's spirit into their lives. They were in a place where you would actually expect them to be to receive an outpouring of God's spirit. It says they're all together in one place, and that place was the festival of Pentecost. It was this religious festival. These, these people had worked hard to put themselves in a place to experience the presence of God. Some of them have traveled more than 150 miles on foot to be there. Just imagine this: if you know I showed up and said, hey, God's gonna move. He's gonna move in a miraculous way but he's not gonna move here. He's gonna actually move in Birmingham, Alabama, and you can't get there by car or by plane or by bike. You gotta walk there. I mean, this is what was happening during Acts chapter two. Like, there was this sense that God was getting ready to do something. They're showing up. They're showing up and, quite practically speaking, they were making this commitment to put themselves in a place to experience the outpouring of God's presence. It's interesting to me that the Spirit of God wasn't poured out on them when they were sleeping in on a Sunday morning or when they were at the bar on a Saturday night. It wasn't poured out on them when they were binge-watching Netflix on a Friday evening. It was, it was poured out first and foremost on the group of people that said, hey, we're gonna do whatever it takes to be front and center for whatever it is that God is doing. This commitment to, to be in the place where God was moving. And I know this this sounds so obvious, but I'm kind of a simple guy, and I, I realize that sometimes we, we, we miss the obvious things, and then we stand back and we go, man, we want God to move in our lives that way, but we don't realize how, how practical it is. I remember, you know, every year I read this report that comes out from this group called the Barna Group, and they, they study kind of uh, the dissonance between American religious belief and American religious practices, so basically what they do is they look at what Americans believe, or at least what we say we believe, and then they look at how it is that we actually live. And so in the year 2000, they had done this study, and uh, they, were, they were polling all of these uh, American churchgoers who would identify as serious followers of Jesus, committed followers of Jesus, and they were looking at uh, all of the, the practices of these people that considered themselves to be serious followers of Jesus in the year 2000. And one of the things that they noticed was in the year 2000, somebody who claimed to be a serious follower of Jesus attended a place of worship at least two times a week. Some of you grew up in churches where you went three times a week, plus you know, Bible studies and prayer groups and everything else you did. But uh, 19 years ago, that was, that was kind of You know, um, par for the course, if you consider yourself a faithful follower of Jesus in America, you attended a place of worship. You put yourself in a place like this twice a week. They ran that same study last year, and they were talking to to Christians who considered themselves to be faithful, committed followers of Jesus here in America. And you know what they discovered is people who identified the same way they did 19 years ago, they attended a place of worship on average two times a month. Over 19 years, just, just, just the shift, where just a generation ago, people are going, man, I wanna see God move in my life. I don't believe part of God moving in my life is putting myself in a place, putting myself in a place where, where Jesus is worshiped, where he's honored, where he's revered, where the word is taught, where the spirit flows. Like, like that's, a, that's a part of just kind of expecting the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I love this because there's this moment where the early disciples they say, hey, Jesus has, has taught us to wait. and we're, we're not where we used to be. We're not where we want to be. We're somewhere in between. We're in the season of waiting. And what does it look like to wait actively on the Lord? Part of what it looks like to wait actively on the Lord is, is committing to put ourselves in a place where we expect to see God move. And so they show up in this place. And so part of waiting actively is showing up showing up consistently in the places where we expect God to move. But it's not just about the place. Uh, The second thing that kind of spoke to my heart as I was reflecting on this this week is that it was also about the people. About the people, I want you to look at verse five with me. Verse five, it says this. It says, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. I love this, this description says so they, they showed up in this place expecting God to move, but they hadn't just shown up as individuals. They hadn't just shown up on their own. They weren't there with cultural Christians. They weren't there with you know, kind of quasi-religious Christians. It says they showed up with God-fearing people, people who, who, who believed the word of God, who believed the ways of God, who, who believed that, that God had something to say in their life. They'd surrounded themselves with people who feared the Lord, yeah, I was with one of my good friends uh, several weeks ago. His name's Kevin. He's a pastor of a church that's about a mile away from here. Good friend of mine. And he was telling me about this thing that he does with each of his kids when they start middle school. He takes his kids out uh, to lunch or to dinner and they're sitting there at lunch or dinner and he, he gets out a napkin and he says, I want you to write down the names of your five closest friends. And so they'll, they'll be there at lunch and they'll write down the names of their five closest friends. He says, now beside each of their names, I want you to put a number somewhere between one and 10 uh, beside each name. And so one is they are an absolute heathen. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. A 10 is they're like almost Jesus himself. I mean, just like really solid followers of Christ. And he says, I want you to put a number. So each of his kids will go through and they'll just write a number by each of their friends. He says it's always a fun moment. You know, he's doing this with one of his daughters recently. She's writing down the numbers and, you know, so-and-so's an eight, so-and-so's a seven. This guy's a two, but he's really funny. You know, and she's writing it all down. And then he'll do this moment where he, he sits down and he says, I want you to take the average of all of your, your friends, like add those scores together, divide it by five. And this is the statement that really struck me. He said this to his daughter, but as he said it to, about her, it just really struck me. He said, he says, the reality is whether we want this to be true or not, most of us most of us become the spiritual average of our five closest friends. And so if if your five closest friends are kind of a six on the spiritual scale, whatever that means to you, the reality is you're, you're probably kind of somewhere in the middle. And he says, it's not about like, hey, if you have a friend that's not a follower of Jesus, it's not that you quit being their friend, he says, but you just have to be careful how much they influence you. So he's doing this with one of his daughters recently and her number wasn't quite as high as she wanted it to be. And he said, What do you think you should do about it? And she looked at one of the friends on the list and she's like, I probably should scratch that guy <laughs> off the list and add a solid eight friend in that slot, you know. And, and uh, but there was something he was getting at. He said, you know, if if you want to see the Spirit of God poured out in your life, it's not just about being in the right place, it's about surrounding yourself with people who unapologetically are chasing hard after the things of God. People who are unapologetically saying, man, I want to be on fire for Jesus. Some of you look around at, at your life right now, and you're absolutely lukewarm, and you look around at all of your friends that are lukewarm, and I just go, man, if if you want to see a shift, if you want to be a shift, see a shift, part of the waiting is not just about the places you put yourself in. It's about the people you surround yourself with. The third kind of picture that was uh, kind of popping up uh, as I was looking through Acts chapter 2. It wasn't just about the place with the people, it's about the posture of the heart. I love this. Look at verse 37 with me. You know, Peter just preached this sermon. He, he, just, he just preached to them, you know, about the reality of who Jesus is. It says, as he's preached to them, it says, when the people had heard this message about Christ, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do about this? Uh, I love this moment because the reality is if we wanna see revival in our life, it's not just about being in the right place. It's not just about being around the right people. It's about coming to this place where all of a sudden we begin to ask the question, is the posture of our heart the type of posture that would allow God to do whatever it is that he wants to do inside of me? I think some of us, we've spent our whole life in the right place, and we've spent our whole life surrounded by the right people, but we've never slowed down long enough to ask God about the questions of our heart. I think sometimes in a culture like ours, we're so busy, we're so bogged down, we're just so overrun with things that we never stop to ask the questions of our heart. Some of us are totally disconnected from our hearts. I was asking one of my neighbors recently, just a question I said. I said, is your heart in a good place for the Lord? And he didn't even know how to answer the question because as a typical guy who's just so busy doing everything, he had never stopped even asking, what does that even mean? He never even thought about the nature of his heart. And so, you know, this is something I try to do regularly. I'm just trying to make this really practical for you. I try to get away with God. And I just try to ask the Lord, hey Lord, would you reveal to me the nature of my heart? Because what was happening on the day of Pentecost was they heard this message about the reality of Jesus and they were, they were in touch with their own hearts enough to reflect upon this reality that they were not in good standing with God. And so they asked the question, hey, what do we need to do to be right? And the reality is a lot of us, it's easy to sometimes just exist and never get into the question of the heart. So I'll do this thing where I get away from time to time and I just ask God, hey, God, would you just show me? Would you show me like what my heart's like before you? So I, I did this recently, uh, you know, I'm an extreme extrovert. And so this is a real discipline for me. I went to dinner by myself, which sounded, sounds like torture for an extrovert. Some of you introverts are like, that's heavenly. I'm like, I hate it, you know, but uh, I went to dinner by myself and I got out this piece of paper Literally, this is something I do. I know it sounds weird, but it just helps me think. uh, I get out this piece of paper, and uh, I draw this heart on the paper. I draw this heart on the paper, and I'm sitting there in this restaurant by myself, you know, and the waiter comes up, and I'm staring at this heart, you know, just, she's probably like, this guy is sad, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) he's a mess, and I just ask the Lord, I'm like, Lord, would you help me to see my heart the way that you see it? And, and I just gave myself the space to just sit there and the, the Spirit of God said, Dave, what I see is a divided heart. I see a man who genuinely loves Jesus. There's a lot of competing forces in your heart. And there's, there's a bunch of questions that I ask the Lord about my heart. I'll just give you two that I tend to ask most frequently. It just helps me assess the condition and the posture of my heart. The first question is this, Lord, is there anything or anyone that's competing for your authority in my life? Is, is there any voice that has more authority over Dave's life than you? And the answer is, I don't want this to be true. I'm just trying to, to shoot straight with you. The Lord said, yeah, at times there's a lot of competing authorities. Dave, sometimes it's your will, it's your wants, it's your dreams, it's your desires. Have you ever noticed that it's really easy to obey Jesus when Jesus is asking you to do the things that you've already committed to doing? It's really easy to follow Jesus when Jesus wants to do the same things you want to do. Um, spoiler alert, in those cases, you're not actually following Jesus, you're following you. When Jesus always agrees with you, you might not actually be following Jesus. It's just the, that's just the truth. And there's these moments where the Lord is saying, hey, Dave, uh, there, are, there are these subtle voices in your life. Sometimes it's your wants, it's your desires, it's your dreams. Sometimes it's the opinions of other people about you. I mean, I've noticed there's moments where God has called me to do something, but I know it would make one of my friends upset or one of my family members upset, and there's this this area of resistance in me. Have you ever felt that before? And I go, that's a competing authority. And here's the reality that Jesus has just been reminding me of recently. Jesus has no interest in being your co-pilot. He wants to be the pilot. He has no interest in being the passenger. He wants to fly the plane or jump out of the plane. He doesn't want to sit in the passenger seat and start, you know, cheer you on to your dreams. That's not who he is. It's not who he is. He says, hey, I've got a bigger dream. I've got a better dream. I've got a better life. But it's going it to require you to let me be in charge, to let, to let me be the authoritative voice in your life. And so, you know, this is what you see unfolding in the book of Acts. These, these people had put themselves not just in the right place for surrounded by the right people, but they had a posture of the heart that said, whoa, you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the Messiah. You're in charge, and we want you to be in charge. And so it's not just about authority, though. The second question that I ask as I just kind of reflect on the posture of my heart is about my affections. Hey, Jesus, is, is there anything or anyone that I love more than I love you? And I don't want this to be true, but he, he just kept reminding me, yes, yes. There's times that I love my wife more than I love Jesus. And I, I don't say that in a boastful way. I say that in a repentant way. It's not fair to Jesus and it's not fair to Sydney. Sydney is an amazing wife. She is a lousy God. She's a lousy savior. She's not meant to be that. And anytime I come to her expecting her to fill every hole in my heart, to correct every place of brokenness, she will let me down, and and I will frustrate her. She's meant to be my partner, not my wife. Uh, My wife. (laughs) Can we edit that out of the podcast? (laughs) She's meant to be my wife and my partner, not my God. Not my God. She can't save me. It's not fair. It's what I do to my children sometimes. I sometimes love my kids more than I love Jesus. And it's not fair to them. It's not fair to Jesus. It's not fair to who he is. He deserves more than that. And whenever I try to make my kids the the, the number one in, in the context of my heart, things go poorly. They disappoint me. And I demand too much of them. And I become crushing of them. Have you ever seen those parents that are just so overbearing? This is what some of you experienced in your house growing up. And the reality is your parents made you the God that you were never meant to be. You're not the center of the universe. The only one who is big enough and good enough for all of humanity to orbit around is Jesus himself. And whenever we cast our affections and our love on anything in anyone other than Jesus Christ, we are destined to crush them and to be disappointed by them. I love this picture that unfolds in Acts chapter two, these, these folks that are waiting on God to move. They put themselves in the right place, but not just in the right place. They they, they put themselves surrounded by the right people, and the posture of their heart was, hey, God, would you reveal to us anything that's out of line, and then would you help us to be responsive? It was the place. It was the people. It was the posture. And last but not least, it was a life built on the promises of God. It was a life built on the promises of God. Look at verse 39 with me. You know, he's he's been preaching to them about salvation and that the spirit of God is ready. I mean, listen to this, that literally one third of the Trinity is ready to take up residence in their body. That's a crazy thought. And this is what he says to them in verse 39. He says, this promise of the indwelling spirit, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off for whom our Lord, our God will call one day. That's talking about you and I. And I love this moment, Peter says, this is a a promise that that you're finding yourselves in the middle of this revival, not because you've worked so hard or strived so hard, you found yourself in the middle of this revival because Jesus is a truth teller. He's not just a promise maker, he's a promise keeper and you find yourself standing in the intersection of God's promises for your life. This is one of the great challenges for so many of us, especially Americans, is we spend our whole lives being disappointed by the reality that God has not kept a promise that he never made. I'll say that again. Some of you have spent your whole life being disappointed by the reality that Jesus has not yet kept a promise that he never made. Somewhere along the way you started believing that Jesus promised you something he never promised in the first place. And you're so disappointed and you're so disenfranchised and you're so frustrated. And I love this this moment where Peter says, hey, be careful that you don't tether your life to a false promise. Uh, so often when I start discipling a person, I'll just ask them a really simple question. I'll say, hey, what are the promises of Jesus? And I'm amazed at how few Christians, how few people that have been spent their whole life in church actually know what the promises of God are. They'll, they'll kind of rattle off one or two, maybe three or four, and then they're like, ah, I don't know any more than that. And so there's always this moment where somebody will say, hey, will you tell me the promises of God? And here's the reality. I could stand up here tonight and I could tell you some of the promises of God But what we've learned about adult learning is that if I stood up here and told you the promises of God, you'd forget them. In fact, you'll forget most of this sermon. Like It's not the way that you're gonna learn. If you want the promises of God, you gotta search them out. You gotta get into the scriptures. You gotta dig. And I'm telling you, if you'll search them out, you'll never forget them take root and you. I remember years ago asking my dad a question, a theological question, and it was just kind of haunting me. And I asked my dad this question, and uh, I get to the end of the question. He looks at me, and he just kind of gives me this riddle. He said, Dave, I could tell you, but I'm not going to tell you the answer, because if you'll cut your own firewood, you'll warm yourself twice. And I'm like, what in the heck does that mean? Like, that's not what I want. Like, I don't want a riddle. I want an answer, you know? And, and so he starts explaining the riddle to me. He said, well, you know, if you're, if you're cold and you start cutting down wood, you get sweaty and you warm yourself up and then you burn the wood later on. And you're, I'm like, I get it, dad. That's not what I want. I want you to tell me, like, tell me. And he says, hey, I'm not gonna give you the answer. But I'll tell you where to find it. I'll tell you where to find it. You just gotta get in and, and do the hard work. And, and here's the reality. Some of you have tied your life to a promise that Jesus has never made. And over and over and over, you're gonna be disappointed by it until so you get into the word and you say, hey, Jesus, would you help me see it? And I, I love this, this moment in Acts chapter two. They've, they've been in this season of waiting, this in-between. They're not where they used to be. They're not where they want to be. They're somewhere in between and they're waiting, but they're not waiting passively. They are waiting actively to say, hey, God, would you do what only God can do? And so they start showing up. They put themselves in the right place. They surround themselves with the right people. They posture their heart in a way that is soft and repentant and responsive. And they anchor their lives into all the promises of God. And then there's this moment where God shows up. And the spirit of God is poured out on the people. And all of a sudden, they begin to experience the thing that we all want. Here's the reality of the book of Acts. Is the book of Acts is not just a historical account. It is, but it's so much more than that. It's a radical invitation in the life that you've always wanted. And we have this ability to sit back and, and to look at it or to step into it. And there's this moment where they step into it and all of a sudden the spirit begins to go at work in them, the spirit begins to go at work all around them in the community and the spirit of God goes at work far beyond them in ways they could have never asked or imagined. And I go, I think that's what God's wanting to do. And I go, can you imagine Can you imagine in this church, like literally tonight, if you you just made uh, the commitment, hey, I'm gonna sit down and I'm just gonna reflect on my own life. God, am I putting myself in a place where your spirit can take hold of me? God, have I surrounded myself with people that will run hard in the kingdom? God, is my heart, is it responsive? Is it responsive to you when you tell me that it's not yet lined up with who you are? And God, are my feet anchored in every promise that you've spoken? See, I believe that as individuals, if we would start really going after God like that, man, the Spirit of God would do more among us communally than we could ever ask or imagine. But for so many of us, it's gonna start here in this in-between, in this place of waiting. So here's what I wanna do tonight before we go to communion. I'm gonna pray over you. I wanna invite you to get in groups of two or three people around you. There's gonna be this question, Cole, you can go ahead and put it on the screen. And the question that I just wanna invite you to reflect over is where do you need God's help to be faithful in the season of the waiting? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a personal place of waiting, maybe it's a communal place of waiting, but, but where do you need God's help to be faithful in this season of waiting? And so I'm gonna pray over us and then I'm gonna invite you to get in groups. We're gonna just talk through that question together. Father, I love you. I thank you for who you are and for what you're doing. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to come to, your, come to your word as though it's a radical invitation for a new way of life. Lord, we don't just wanna learn it, we wanna live it. And would you help us wherever we find ourselves in the place of waiting, God, would, uh, would you come quickly, Would you identify? would you identify those places where we need your help and would you help us to be soft and responsive to you? In the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks, amen.